Welcome to Socialist Revolution Podcast. Today, we provide a revolutionary Marxist perspective on the situation in Cuba. America will never be a socialist country. Attitudes are changing towards socialism. We believe the only solution is the establishment of a workers' government on a socialist program. Jorge Martín, a comrade in the International Marxist Tendency and editor for Marxist.com, appeared on the Irish podcast Rupture Radio to discuss current events in Cuba. The interview analyzes the recent protests that have broken out in the country, the imperialist blockade, and the tasks facing revolutionaries. Visit marxist.com slash Cuba or click the link in the description to follow our ongoing coverage of the Cuban Revolution, which includes some really important articles authored by Jorge. Just to kick us off, in the past week or so, there's been protests occurring in Cuba, and as a result, numerous contending narratives on how things began and how things are developing. While at this stage we can say that there were two sets of protests, it seems that one was anti-government in in nature. Some have argued that these protests against the government were some kind of imperialist or CIA plot or largely pushed by such forces, um, while others basically build up the anti-government protests into some kind of radical movement for progressive change. Of course, we know that the reality is much more complicated. Um, So would you just, as a start, be able to explain to our listeners what exactly began these protests against the government in Cuba? Yes, it's not not an easy uh, answer. It's not, not a simple answer. Uh, we have to say that there were protests in Cuba, anti-government protests in Cuba, uh, and they were significant, very significant. On July the 11th, um, I will say that these were the biggest and most widespread anti-government protests in Cuba uh, since 1994. And the protests in 1994 were mainly limited to Havana. So, and these ones were spread throughout the country. I think there were about 16 different towns and cities where there were protests and so on. Uh, they were not very big in numbers. I have been uh, checking the, the different videos and images that are available and the different uh, sources. And I would say that maybe in at the peak in Havana, there were perhaps 2,000 people protesting. Now Havana is a city of 3 million. But it is very significant uh, for the Cuban situation where these things are not uh, usual. Now, the, the protest actually started in San Antonio de los Baños. This is a, a small town, medium-sized town, southwest of uh, the capital, Havana. And the immediate reason for this is a, g- a group of people got together on social media and they, and they wanted to protest mainly about electricity cutoffs that had been going on in San Antonio for about a week. And they were, they were lasting for quite a long time. Uh, and it's very hot now in, in Cuba, so this was affecting lots of other things, um, things you have in your fridge, uh, the ability to use uh, air conditioning or fans, stuff like that. And um, combined with this, people were al- people also worried about spike in COVID-19 cases. Now, when uh, Cuba has managed to control the pandemic very effectively, 
anyone who gets infected is taken to a government-funded isolation center where they are fed for, for the duration and so on. And they manage to control the situation quite uh, effectively. But about 20 days ago or so, or maybe a month ago, there were some cases of the new this new Delta variant, and uh, which, we, as we know, is much more contagious. There was a spike in cases, and particularly in this one province of Matanzas, uh, people started to get very worried that the health system was overrun by the pandemic. There were people in the in the corridors of the hospitals, and this created a sensation of anxiety, panic amongst people, which was amplified by social media. And as you were asking, there was definitely a campaign of uh, imperialism, United States, which has been very effectively using social media to try to influence uh, people in uh, in Cuba. And they used things that are real. There's very uh, uh, serious economic hardship that people are suffering. We can go into the details of why this is, but this is true. And uh, also the, 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 the spike in COVID-19 cases is also true. But they obviously magnify, they uh, spread also false information. The, the, the U.S. government spends about, officially, spends about $20 million a year in uh, promotion of democracy uh, in inverted commas efforts, uh, the funding of uh, opposition uh, reactionary counter-revolutionary magazines, newspapers, uh, YouTube channels, uh, you name it, yeah. uh, social media. And this did have an impact, I, I will say. But of course, we we not uh, we Marxists, right? We, we don't subscribe to the conspiracy theory view of uh, history. If this propaganda at this particular time had an impact and brought people out on the streets to protest is because the conditions were there for yeah. that. Yeah. People wanted to protest and, and the reasons that people were protesting about were, were very, very true. Um, so I think it's a combination of the two things, uh, increasing discontent, malaise, uh, the, sense, the feeling that the government is not dealing with the immediate problems of the population or that the measures that the government introduces make the situation worse. Um, combined with this sudden spike of uh, COVID-19 cases, people came out on the streets to protest. And amongst those who protested on the streets, there were different layers, I will say. Uh, there was an element of people from uh, working class areas, poor neighborhoods that have suffered the brunt of this economic hardship. Uh, and they were coming out to protest. They wanted, they wanted to vent their, their, their anger, dissatisfaction. Then there was uh, elements which have been growing in Cuba in the recent period, particularly in the last 10 years, the government has introduced a series of market reforms. And uh, there has been a growth of uh, self-employed, small business people, small cap petty capitalist uh, elements. And amongst those, uh, counter-revolutionary ideas are very strong. And they are against the government. They want the government to be overthrown. They hate communism as they see it. And uh, these elements were also very clearly present, uh, openly counter-revolutionary elements. And there's a third element, I will say, a lot of uh, uh, um, youth in Cuba, um, young intellectuals, artists, um, people like that, university students who feel that the government is using um, repression, censorship, arbitrary measures against freedom of speech, and they are discontented, and, and they come from many different uh, shades of opinion. Some of them call themselves socialists, some, some others, I don't know, you will describe them as maybe social democrats or liberals. They want democracy in abstract, which as we know is bourgeois democracy. 
where incidentally there's no freedom of speech in reality. But all these different elements were combined and came out on the on the streets on that day for this protest. But I think that what's most perhaps most important, if we can deal with this very quickly, is the reasons for these economic hardships, which is at the bottom of this protest. Without these economic hardships, there will be no protest, no matter how, how much, or the protest will be very, very small, no matter how much propaganda uh, United States pours on, on the island. And, the, and I will say that I, perhaps three main strands to, to three, three main reasons why this uh, economic situation is so bad. Before we move on to the economic situation, maybe is there, um, could we talk about as well the, the, the mass kind of counter protests uh, that are occurring in Cuba? So like the, the thousands of people who are coming out onto the streets who are kind of, are, are they kind of like pro-government or are they kind of in defense of the Cuban revolution or the ideas of the Cuban revolution or is there kind of something else uh, to that? Yeah, as soon as the protest started in San Antonio de Los Baños, President Díaz-Canel went to San Antonio, tried to uh, open a dialogue with the people, tried to talk to people, see what their grievances were and so on. And then coming out of San Antonio, he made an, it was clear to everyone that what was happening in San Antonio will then be replicated in other places. There were people who wanted to come out and protest, and that was like the signal. And, uh, and President Diaz-Canel made an appeal. He said that all communists and revolutionaries should come out on the streets to defend the revolution. Um, so this is not a case, as uh, perhaps the, the world's capitalist media is presenting, of the people against the, the repressive forces of the state, uh, the people against the government. No, there, there were two sides on July the 11th. Uh, on the one side, there was the state, yes, but also a large number of people who did follow, uh, who did uh, um, follow this this appeal by the president to come out on the streets to defend the revolution. And amongst those, there there were many different types of people: people who are pro-government, people who are government loyalists who wouldn't dare say any criticism. Mm-hmm. But there were also elements that, that are very critical of the government, the government's handling of the economy, the government's handling of, of the situation. I know some of them. Uh, I know, for instance, um, young comrade who was uh, participated in a protest of intellectuals on the 27th of November for freedom of expression against censorship. And he was now, he declared publicly, I'm going out on the streets today, but I'm going on the side of defending the revolution. And he then explained, I was part of a large group, perhaps a few thousand people who came out uh, that way. And uh, we, a group of us, got separated from the main uh, pro-revolution crowd. And we were confronted by a crowd of perhaps a thousand, two thousand people who were very angry and they wanted to lynch us. There was a change of uh, rocks on both sides. And they, this could have ended up very badly. It didn't, but, but it could have. People were injured. People had uh, rocks thrown at them and stuff like that. Also, it has to be said, part of these demonstrations were uh, anti-government demonstrations were peaceful. People just marched mm. from A to B, um, tried to avoid the police. But some others were violent. There was overturning of a police uh, patrol car, uh, which was obviously uh, the police was uh, uh, overwhelmed. Uh, there was an attack on a children's hospital. Um, um, hard currency shops were attacked, but also in some places, like in Santa Clara, there was an attempt to overrun the local office, the local headquarters of the Communist Party. And so, so this was also the case. There was police repression. The police tried to contain the, the crowd. In some, some cases, used uh, batons. There, there were arrests. Uh, these arrests were not very large in numbers, but they were a bit indiscriminate. People were arrested randomly. Some, most of them were released uh, 24 hours later. 
So this is just to paint the, the full picture of what happened on the day. Then the following weekend, I Saturday last week, uh, there was a call from the government for a demonstration in defense of the revolution. And perhaps 100,000 people came out in, in right. Havana. This is a large demonstration considering the COVID yeah, uh, conditions and so on. And I will say that quite a lot of this was mobilized through the state, state um, structures, the mass organizations of the revolution and so on. There was a lot, a lot of other people who also came out uh, on their own uh, accord. They got together in the neighborhoods or in the workplaces, places of study, and they went together to this demonstration. They wanted to show that uh, the picture that's been painted of an unpopular government facing the mass of the people was not true and that uh, still a majority support the revolution however many criticisms they may they may have of the of the handling of of the economy or other things like that yeah so so just moving on to the economy then um i think we would all um say and and much has been made i think correctly of the central impact of the blockade against cuba which is being carried out by u.s imperialism however there are numerous commentators in both the right-wing capitalist media and some on the left who argue that the blockade is in some ways used to underplay a worsening economic situation in your view how much of the current economic crisis in cuba can be attributed to the blockade uh, I'll just give you some uh, examples. I mean, the blockade has existed since 1962, so it's nearly 60 years now, and it's the, the immediate response of Washington to the expropriation of U.S. property in the island. Um, so the blockade is against the fact that uh, capitalism has been abolished in, in Cuba 60 years ago, uh, and the blockade has existed for all these times. But nevertheless, the blockade has gotten worse for different reasons. One, the Soviet Union that no longer exists. So the, the very favorable relationship that existed between Cuba and the, and the Soviet Union is gone. Uh, and therefore, Cuba is more at the mercy of the world capitalist market than it was uh, previously 30 years ago. Then in the 1990s, uh, different administrations uh, introduced a number of new laws like the Torricelli Act, the Helms-Burton Act, which strengthened the blockade. For instance, the Helms-Burton Act, which was introduced, if I'm not wrong, in 96, uh, they introduces the principle of extraterritoriality. So uh, what it basically says is that companies and citizens in the US can sue, can take to court companies and citizens in other, in third countries, not in Cuba, but in third countries, uh, Spain, Europe, uh, anywhere, which deal or traffic, that's the language they use, the traffic in uh, companies with companies that benefit from expropriated property back in 1959. Uh, and, and this is contained in uh, the Title III of the Helms-Burton Act. Ever since the Helms-Burton Act was passed, Title III has been suspended. But under Trump, two years ago, uh, he lifted the suspension of Act Article III. So as of two years ago, a number of uh, suits have been filed in U.S. in U.S. courts against uh, companies, citizens, and, and people from Europe. Mainly, Europe has a lot of investment in Cuba, tourism, and so on. Uh, that uh, is related to this question. Say, someone, the the father had the land expropriated in Cuba, and in that land now there is a hotel. This person has the right and has done it. There's been many cases that to, to sue. Uh, I don't know, uh, a Spanish hotel chain that is uh, has a joint venture with the Cuban state exploiting that uh, uh, tourist uh, installation. That's absolutely uh, crazy. 
That is crazy. Uh, and it's completely illegal, obviously. Then there's another example. About one year ago, April 2020, Jack Ma, the, the Chinese capitalist owner of Alibaba, um, he's not a friend of ours, but I mean, he's a capitalist anyway. He, he, he for his own reasons, I guess, propaganda, uh, decided to send medical equipment for fighting the COVID pandemic to a number of countries. Uh, including Spain. I remember there was a, there was a plane yeah, load yeah. Of, of stuff arrived there, some Latin American countries. He decided to send some material to Cuba, uh, ventilators, um, uh, face masks, and all the stuff like this. He hired a Colombian company, Avianca Cargo, the main airline in, in Colombia, to deliver this stuff. The Avianca Cargo accepted the contract, but then refused to carry it out because they were worried that they will then be subject to sanctions by the U.S. So this is cargo that's going from a Chinese company via a Colombian company to a third to, to Cuba. It has nothing to do with the United States, but nevertheless, that affects uh, that affects the ability of Cuba to trade with the rest of the world. So just just to give you an indication of what the embargo is is actually about. This doesn't mean that Cuba is not trading with the U.S. Cuba is, is purchasing food, for instance, from the U.S. But the conditions imposed by the embargo are very onerous on, on Cuba. For instance, they have to pay for the full cargo in advance, which never happens in any capitalist transaction. Uh, there's no company that will insure the cargo in case something happens. Uh, and, and, and they have to pay very steep uh, prices. And they can only import certain things, not others, and stuff like that. Trump, during his administration, introduced 243 new measures strengthening the embargo. The last one, which he introduced, well, one of them was, for instance, that under Obama, uh, U.S. citizens were allowed to travel as tourists to Cuba. This was uh, closed down. U.S. cruise ships or cruise ships uh, docking at a U.S.-based port will no, no longer go to Cuba, as was the case under, under Obama. And uh, finally, December last year, Trump introduced a measure, which is a sanction against a particular company, which then prevented Western Union from operating in Cuba, and therefore means that Cuban Americans in the U.S. cannot send money to their families in Cuba. Uh, and this is a big hit for the Cuban economy. Uh, remittances represent a large part of, uh, of foreign currency, hard currency income. And incidentally, none of these measures have been lifted by Biden. Uh, is maintained exactly the same policy towards Cuba than the, the, that uh, Trump. So yes, the embargo, the blockade has a massive impact on the Cuban economy still today. Uh, and I've given some concrete examples. There are, of course, other factors that explain the economic crisis in Cuba. One is um, the COVID pandemic. Uh, as we know, in, in all countries in the world, the COVID pandemic has stopped production, um, hit the economy and so on. But in, in Cuba, it's done so in, in a more uh, serious way because Cuba depends quite a lot on tourism. Uh, tourism I'll just give you some figures. Uh, Cuba imports food worth $2 billion US dollars a year. And uh, the hit it took from the loss income from tourism was $3 billion. So all the money, say, that they had or to one side to import food was gone in one go because Cuba closed down uh, flights into Cuba in April last year, as soon as the pandemic started and hasn't reopened until early this year. So, 
something like three, four million tourists have not gone to Cuba in, in the high season, in the winter, our, our winter over here. So, so that's a big hit. Uh, the Cuban economy has collapsed by 11% last year. Um, so it's a combination of different factors. But I will say there's a third factor, which, oh, sorry, there's a fourth factor. There's a, the third factor is that Cuba used to export services, medical services, that are Cuban doctors uh, in, in, um, in uh, change contracts with a number of uh, other countries. And this included in the past Brazil, Ecuador, Bolivia, Venezuela. And this has now been massively curtailed in the last few years. Bolsonaro came to power in Brazil. Yeah. Right wing came to power in Ecuador. There was a coup in uh, Bolivia. And Venezuela has been hit by a massive economic crisis, which is a separate matter, but this is no longer able to have the same number of uh, Cuban doctors. This was a total amount of about six billion US dollars worth of income. It's not completely gone, but it's massively reduced. So I will say that means that the Cuban revolution, to a certain, to a large extent, depends on what happens in the rest of the world from a political point of view as well. If there's a so-called left government that makes a contract with uh, Cuban doctors, that benefits Cuba. So Cuba, Cuban revolution is dependent on political developments in, in the continent and abroad. And the fourth mm -hmm. factor, I think that this is also important to mention, the fourth factor for the economy is decisions taken by the government. Uh, in Cuba, there is a planned economy. A plan, the plan is being weakened. In the last 10 years, the government has been taking a number of uh, uh, measures of opening up to the, to the market, uh, promoting small um, and micro businesses, self-employment, and so on. And some of these measures have contributed to, incre to increasing uh, inequality. Uh, and particularly this year, at the beginning of the year, they took a package of measures. They introduced a package of measures called the Ordenamiento Monetario, um, the reorganization of the currency, which meant uh, a very steep devaluation of the currency, uh, the currency unification. There used to be two currencies. There's one now. Uh, and they also, in order to counterbalance this, they increased wages. Uh, but there were a whole number of measures. These measures didn't really work. The idea was that there will not be inflation. There has been massive inflation. Uh, there has been massive scarcity of basic food products and medicines. Part of this is because of the embargo. Part of this is because of the loss of hard currency income by the government. They can't buy in the, in the world market. But the truth is that people have to queue uh, for many hours for basic products, for medicines, which wasn't the case before. Uh, the government has also cut a number of subsidies and social programs that existed before that were universal subsidies. Now they've been replaced by targeted subsidies. Uh, and this has uh, impacted the poorest uh, the most. And, and this created the situation in which this propaganda by imperialism had an impact and people came out to protest. There is also, obviously, the planned economy is run in a bureaucratic uh, way and bureaucracy brings inefficiency, mismanagement, uh, people don't feel that they own the means of production and therefore they, they're not particularly interested in the running of these uh, things. There's a whole number of things like that which also impact the, the economy. It's a combination of things. But of course, if the blockade was uh, lifted tomorrow, the situation will, will massively uh, improve, uh, significantly improve. Sure. And, if, and if COVID 
pandemic was to be controlled and came to an end, there will also be be a big uh, mean a big difference from the economic point of view. Okay, that's that's extremely uh, interesting information. Uh, so, like, just in terms of like you know kind of taking care of the kind of economic a- aspect of this question here, there's also the political aspect here of you know, for example, a very long-standing criticism of the Cuban government that comes from the left uh, is. Yeah, for example, uh, basically a lack of democracy, you know, inverted commas in, in Cuba, uh, and both like the genuine sense of workers' democracy and in other senses. So, for example, the repression of you know left-wing critics of the Cuban government and the banning of parties to draw outside of the Cuban Communist Party, and is like, is there really truth to these criticisms? Is like the lack of democracy the main problem uh, in Cuba or a main problem in Cuba? And like, you know, are there ways for socialists uh, who are critical of the government in Cuba to to, to speak out? And or or uh, speak out and organize in a legal way. Is it, is the repression really as bad as as is often made out to be? I uh, I will say I, I will say it's a bit more complicated than than that. It's true in Cuba you cannot organize a party outside of the Cuban Communist Party. That's quite clear. It's in it's in the constitution. There's one party. That doesn't mean that in Cuba there are no discussions and there are no avenues for discussions. And there's uh, I mean the Cubans are very outspoken. If anyone's ever gone to Cuba, they know that uh, three Cubans meet. They have five different uh, opinions, and they will and they will tell you very loudly. Um, so, and there are there are places where people can discuss. There is there is a, a number of uh, websites, blogs that are more or less critical of the management of the economy, and there are debates taking place. For instance. Um, Two years ago, they had a big debate about the, the reform amendment of the constitution. And this debate was very wide ranging. That, that's not so much the problem. The problem, I will say, is that like in the constitution, it is a very wide ranging debate. People discuss it in the workplaces, in the neighborhoods, everywhere. Uh, and there is a feeling that they that they that they've been consulted somehow. But say uh, a workplace uh, unit of the of the union or workplace number of workers, they decide to send a comment on the constitution, say, we, we, we don't want to change this. We want to keep that other bit. And, and there's no structure for doing this. They don't know. I mean, they send their, their comments up and they don't know what's going to happen to their comments. There is not, not a process where you can present formal am- amendments and then these are voted and so on. So I think there is problems in the structure uh, for genuine workers' democracy, there are, there are very clear problems in relation to that. But it's not like you you have an opinion and this opinion will be immediately clamped down. Uh, there, there is very wide-ranging debates. I, I, for once, was in Cuba twelve years ago. We were participating in the in the Havana Book Fair, and we had an official meeting at the Havana Book Fair to launch Trotsky's Trotsky's uh, uh, Revolution Betrayed book. And uh, this was advertised publicly, was covered in the official media. The, the room was full. There was a lot of interest. Uh, we sold out all the copies that managed to, Very to good. Take, take to Cuba. And, and these ideas are being discussed. Um, but, they, but that doesn't mean there is no censorship or repression. Once you go from the, the field of uh, discussing ideas to maybe organizing to do something about the, then there is curtailment, curtailment of, of this. There's no, uh, there's no doubt about, uh, about this. Um, 
so that that is the that is the, um, the situation. But there are there are places where people people can discuss. There, there is a forum in in Havana, for instance. It's called the Last Thursday. It takes place the last Thursday of every month, and people organize debates. And there's a wide range of of opinions expressed there. Uh, most of the people who go as socialists, but there are different shades of socialists. The people are very critical of the bureaucracy. The people who are maybe, I don't know, tending towards social democracy. Things like this. Um, uh, this is possible to to debate and, and propose ideas because mainly you, you have to see that the Cuban leadership for many years was very closely aligned with the Soviet Union. And then in 89, 91, 1989, uh, 91, the Soviet Union collapsed. Not only the Soviet Union collapsed, but the, the, the restoration of capitalism was led and organized by the Communist Party leadership. This was a big shock in Cuba. And people started discussing what's happened in Cuba. Uh, for instance, in Cuba, they, they published a book in, in, I can't remember the exact year, but they published a book by two um, researchers, uh, which, is, which is dealing with the question of the collapse of Stalinism in Russia. And the book has a, a, a preface, an introduction by Alan Woods and Ted Grant. And they both put a very clear Trotskyist uh, position on this question. This book has been published officially by Ciencias Sociales, which is a, a state-owned publishing uh, house. So there are many discussions. This is the reason, because people, people are thinking, what is this? What happened with Stalinism? There is, there is a wide-ranging discussion about this. And the leadership doesn't have the same authority as in the past. I'll just give you one other example. I think it uh, illustrates this very well. About 10 or maybe 12, 15 years ago, there was what was known as the war of the emails. And what happened was this. There was a TV program that dealt with people, personalities in the culture, which played a role in Cuban culture in the past and so on. And they invited this guy, Pavon. Now, Pavon uh, was not very well known, but some people remembered him. He was the chief censor in the worst period of censorship in Cuba between 1971-76, which was known as the five gray years. And he was in charge of censoring artists, TV programs, and so on. It was very hated by, by most of the intellectuals. Um, and he appeared in this TV program. Immediately, there was an uproar. Uh, intellectuals, artists, writers, journalists started writing to each other emails. These emails became public. And finally, the Minister of Culture convened a meeting. There was such an angry mood. They convened a meeting of the National Union of Artists and, and Writers, uh, 500 people turned up, 200 were outside, couldn't get in, and uh, he was uh, attacked. He was uh, berated by all these uh, writers. He finally had to apologize, had to issue an, an official apology, and uh, Pavon was never to be seen again in the public uh, media. People had taken that as a, as a provocation. So, uh, yes, there is um, censorship, there, there's, there's, there's curtailment of, of freedom of expression, but there is also a very strong, vibrant, debate and, and political uh, change of opinions that uh, no one can really stop. In fact, even in the, in the constitutional reform, there was some of that. The original proposal for the constitutional reform removed quite a lot of the references, for instance, to building a communist society. And this is the our aim is communism and so on. This was all removed. And uh, there were so many protests and turmoil internally within the party that then this, when it was put to the vote, finally, it had been returned to the, to the draft. It doesn't mean 
that they are actually building communism, but it's just the, the meaning and the symbolism of words that uh, they wanted to remove. People didn't want them removed, and yeah. they had to they had to make a concession. So I, I'd say that these examples more or less give you an idea of what what the situation really really is. Yeah, and I think it, it it's far more reflective. And I think this understanding of events and how things have developed and how Cuban society has developed um, can inform a perspective uh, in terms of how you make a judgment or how how socialists internationally should uh, react. <clears throat> but we when when it comes to criticism or um, difference that's raised, whether internally in in Cuban society um, or externally. There's obviously a difference between being critical of the approach of the Cuban government um, and criticizing or opposing the gains of the Cuban revolution. Um, many who are anti-imperialist argue that we can't at this stage criticize the Cuban government because it's under such threat um, from U.S. imperialism or that we should hold back from doing so. While others will argue that comradely criticism is a necessary component of safeguarding the gains of the Cuban revolution and deciding how best to um, proceed, obviously, uh, over very difficult terrain. That calls into question, like, what, what role, in your view, do socialists outside of Cuba have to play in this regard? I, I will say that the, the first and foremost duty of socialists outside Cuba is to defend the Cuban revolution and fight against our own our own inverted commas imperialist governments, which are, which are strangling the, the Cuban uh, revolution. That's that's quite clear. Particularly, this is particularly the case for for socialists in in the United States, which is mainly responsible for this blockade. As you know, the, the blockade has been voted against at the, at the United Nations General Assembly for for I think it's twenty years now or perhaps more, um, by an overwhelming majority. The only ones who vote in favor of the, the, the blockade is uh, Israel, the United States, and in the last time there were three abstentions, um, Brazil, Ukraine, and Colombia. So, I mean, uh, this is mainly something for the U.S. Uh, uh, socialists to, to deal with, to, to mobilize a, a serious campaign against this uh, blockade. This is the main duty. The, our, our main and first duty is to, to one duty of solidarity and anti-imperialism. There's no, no doubt about that. However, I think that <clears throat> there is also other things that we need to, to do. The Cuban revolution is not just uh, the property of the Cuban people. It's, it's an inspiration for people around the world. Many people carry Che Guevara t-shirts in, in protest, I don't know, in, in Myanmar. Uh, in Ireland, uh, across the world, anyone who considers themselves a revolutionary fighter uh, has, has certain inspiration in the Cuban uh, revolution. Uh, the abolition of capitalism, 90 miles from, uh, from Washington, from the United States, the most powerful imperialist power on earth, is very inspiring. And we, we have to defend it because if the Cuban revolution was to be overthrown, this will be a setback, not only for the Cubans, that, that's for certain, but also for the whole of Latin America, uh, the workers' movement, but but even beyond the, the workers' movement everywhere in, in the world. So that's our first duty. But at the same time, uh, that we stand firmly on the, on the camp of the defense of the Cuban revolution, and that's very clearly the position of the IMT, the International Marxist Tendency, we stand on the side of the defense of the Cuban revolution. But we also, we also have the duty to say that we think that the methods the bureaucracy is using to defend the Cuban revolution don't work. Uh, and some of them are even counterproductive. It's very clear that there is a strong body of opinion in the Cuban leadership 
that uh, think that the way forward for the economy is the Chinese way or the Vietnamese uh, way, as they like to put it more, more in Cuba. That is the slow, gradual, controlled restoration of capitalism under the leadership of the Cuban of the Communist Party. Uh, and, and we think that this will be a disaster. First of all, Cuba is not China. China is not socialist. China is a capitalist country. Uh, but, but Cuba is not China. China had some advantages in moving to capitalism. It's been a disaster um, for, for workers in the long term. But in the short term, uh, there were masses of people moved from the countryside onto the cities. And there was a reserve of cheap labor that they could use uh, to, to propel this uh, development of capitalism. In Cuba, nothing like this exists. In Cuba, if the capitalism is restored, there, will, there won't be 8% economic growth for 20 years. No way. There will be the immediate return of the capitalists who are waiting in uh, Miami uh, with, the, with the suitcases packed and they will take over the island again. And, and if you want to know what Cuba will be under capitalism, it will be, uh, it wouldn't be Norway or Denmark, Sweden, some, some imagine in Cuba. This Cuba, some, some people naively imagine that, okay, we can go to capitalism, have a freedom of expression, demo, bourgeois democracy, and a welfare state. No, no, Cuba, capitalist Cuba will be Haiti or the Dominican Republic, neighboring island. And we know what that means. All the conquest of the revolution will be destroyed. And this is what I fear, that some of the measures or many of the measures taken by the leadership in Cuba, opening up to the market uh, and so on, even though they are forced on them to a certain extent by, by the economic situation, but these measures, uh, uncontrolled, they lead inevitably, independently of the, of the intentions of those who implement them, they lead towards capitalism. And what's happened on July the 11th proves that. Uh, they lead to inequality, uh, they lead to discontent, they lead to hitting the poor hardest, uh, and this creates the, 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 the situation for, for protest. So it is our duty as well to say this. From the point of view of the defense of the Cuban revolution, we don't think that this is the best way. Actually, we think that this is counterproductive. Also, we think that the way... The leadership and the government or the state sometimes deals with uh, protests or differences of opinion through censorship, through curtailing uh, debate and so on. It's counterproductive and it's pushing people away from the, from the revolution. Uh, so what is our alternative? I would say that what we should defend is, is the, the widest possible wide-ranging debate amongst all different shades of opinion, amongst those who defend the revolution, mm -hmm. those who attack the revolution, those who are openly counter-revolutionaries, they have a lot at their disposal already. They don't need freedom of expression. They don't need to be <laughs> featured in the state media. But the state media should be open to all shades of uh, revolutionary opinion. And there are many shades of revolutionary opinion. The people are very critical. Um, also, they should be... Uh, all measures of workers' control and accountability introduced. Uh, that is, that uh, the workers themselves decide and run the economy and the state. Uh, and they, they have the ability, this is a very well-educated working class, which has the, the, the benefit of uh, higher education, uh, a good health system, and so on. 
they are perfectly capable of running the economy much better than the bureaucrats. Uh, the abolition of all privileges of the bureaucracy, which are not exactly the same as they were, for instance, in Stalinist Russia, but they nevertheless, they exist. Um, High-ranking high members of the party and the state, they have access to special shops. They don't have to queue for hours for basic products. Uh, the sons and daughters of the bureaucracy sometimes uh, seen fla- uh, um, uh, showing off their wealth uh, and so on. This is um, counterproductive for the revolution. This this pushes people away from the defense of the revolution. It doesn't help. And the other thing is that we think that the Cuban revolution should should follow a, a foreign policy of socialist internationalism. So the Cuban revolution is known for international solidarity, mm-hmm. but a lot of the policy of the Cuban government is based on uh, how should we say it? Uh, geopolitics, i.e., uh, China is in conflict with the United States, therefore, China is uh, good. Uh, mm-hmm. Iran is in conflict with the United States, the, the Iranian regime is good. Russia is in, Putin is in conflict with uh, the United States, therefore, we support Putin. And of course, there's, there's one thing is that uh, Cuba has the right to have trade relationships with, with whoever wants to trade with uh, with Cuba in the middle of a blockade, of course. Mm-hmm. But that's one thing, trade relations and economic relations. It's another thing to say or imply somehow that uh, the Putin regime in, in Russia is progressive or is anti-neoliberal or that the Chinese uh, regime is progressive. It is, it is not. And, and people are fooling themselves if they think that the Chinese government or state has any interest in defending the Cuban revolution. For them, it's mm-hmm. just a small fry, uh, a cheap, the bargaining chip that they can use in the conflict with the United States. Uh, and, and so, therefore, the only real help that the Cuban revolution can get is from workers and uh, working class movement across the world in Latin America and, and in the United States and, and uh, Europe. This should be the foreign uh, policy. I think that yeah. these things are important and must be said because if not, you you when when a friend of yours is making a mistake, you're not a very good friend. If you, <laughs> if you say, "Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, you you're doing well," uh, a good friend is someone who's able to to say to you, "Look, I don't think you you're doing the right thing." Now, of course, this is not for us to decide. The, the Cuban uh, workers, the Cuban communists, the revolutionaries will decide their own uh, the, what they want to do. But we have a duty and we have a right to participate in that debate uh, modestly, uh, humbly, uh, uh, saying what we think and, and uh, participating with, with whatever ideas we, we have. Uh, with whatever experience we can contribute. Uh, and that links very well to the kind of next question I'd have for you here, Jorge, which I think was a very interesting points you made there. Like, kind of all throughout the second half of the 20th century, there was like some form of lively debate over the nature of the Cuban revolution. So some people argued that it was a genuine socialist revolution. That's it. You know, we've done it. And others were kind of like that. Well, it was the foreign workers state. So it was kind of like you had the nationalized economy, but not workers democracy and all that kind of stuff like the Eastern Bloc countries. And some kind of argue it was state capitalist. So it wasn't even socialist at all in any form. And others, you know, were kind of in between all that saying it was kind of like a worker state with bureaucratic deformation. So like kind of like Soviet Russia in 1920, as opposed to the USSR in 1960. So it seems clear to me that like in any case, the Cuban society is far more open. Uh, than the societies of the Soviet Union or the Eastern Bloc when they still existed. And so rather than kind of get too deep into the theory of it and the history of it here, 
from kind of from a critical Marxist perspective, is it possible for the Cuban Revolution to be put on the road towards socialist transformation through reform, or is it like the political revolution necessary to kind of uh, prescription for the the old Stalinist bureaucracies? So kind of the, the old question of reform and revolutionary, which one, which way forward do you think? Yes, this this is a very interesting uh, question, and I think that sometimes. Labels can be useful as shorthand for, for things we know what, what they mean, but sometimes they're not necessarily, not necessarily useful for, un, for really understanding the, the situation. Like, for instance, uh, up until 1933, I think it was, that, that Trotsky advocated the reform of, of the Soviet Union. And by 1933, Trotsky had been already uh, hounded out of the party, of the international, and uh, and was in exile, and, and people were being expelled by the thousands. Uh, but we had not reached the purge trials yet, let's put it this way. And then after that, Trotsky advocated the political revolution. He said, look, this has gone so bad, the bureaucracy is so entrenched, the only way to remove the bureaucracy is a political revolution. What did he mean? That the workers must take power, but their tasks will be mainly political, i.e. establishing workers' democracy. Because there, there already exists a planned economy, a state-owned planned economy. Now, how, how is this related to Cuba? I mean, uh, it's a long discussion, but j- just to say one thing. Uh, Marxism is, is, is not mechanical uh, and is not scholastic. It is seeing things in all their contradictions, in their development, uh, and from all sides. Right. So in 1959, the Cuban Revolution was a very strange animal. Uh, the, the Cuban Revolution came to power on the basis of a national democratic program. They, they were not socialists. They didn't want to uh, abolish capitalism. But by implementing the national democratic program, they ended up abolishing capitalism in less than three years to their, to their credit. Uh, because many others, many other revolutionary mm-hmm. leaders uh, in, in third, so-called third world countries also came to power the national democratic program, and instead of, of, of fulfilling it, they betrayed it uh, because they, they could see it was going too far. Uh, so that's one thing. So when, when that happened, uh, amongst the so-called Trotskyist movement, there was a division of opinions. Uh, these people, in, in my opinion, were not using the Marxist method. Some of them said, the theory of permanent revolution says that uh, only the proletariat coming to power can solve the problems of the national democratic revolution in backward capitalist countries. Therefore, because the proletariat has not come to power in a classical way in Cuba, therefore, there's no revolution. There's no, capitalism has not been abolished, and this is still a capitalist regime. This is a completely um, um, a scholastic, uh, mechanical way of, of uh, thinking, which seeks to impose preconceived schemes on the real situation. But there was another body of opinion, other people who said, because there has been the abolition of capitalism, therefore the proletariat has come to power and this is a healthy worker state, which wasn't also the case. The the situation was more complicated. And in fact, for the first 10 years of the Cuban revolution, there was a complete clash, an open clash between the Cuban leadership Castro and uh, Fidel Castro and Che Guevara and this Soviet leadership, which was Stalinist, uh, Stalinist of the of the Khrushchevite uh, type at that at that time, because uh, on many things, for instance, on foreign policy, Khrushchev was for peaceful coexistence, and Che Guevara said there has to be th- two, three, many Vietnams. Uh, on the question of Marxism, 
there was a, there was a group of people at the Havana philosophy department of the, of the Havana University. They said we must study Marxism by reading the classics of bourgeois philosophy and the classics of uh, classic philosophy and the classics of Marxism. And the Stalinists said no, we must read the Soviet manuals of Marxism, which had nothing to do with Marxism. Uh, the, in the field of culture, the same thing. The, the Stalinists wanted to impose uh, Soviet realism, and the other one said, no, uh, art must be revolutionary, but must be free to experiment, and so on. Um, and also in the, in the question of the economy, it was a big debate between Che Guevara and Carlos Rafael Rodriguez, I, who was a Stalinist. Ironically, Carlos Rafael Rodriguez had been a minister under the Batista government in 1942 when uh, the Stalinists were, were in an alliance with Batista, who, who was then the dictator that the revolution overthrew. So there was a lot of debate at that time. And uh, finally, by 1971, these debates were closed. Uh, the, the attempt to export the revolution had failed. This is a separate discussion. And Cuba had become isolated and much more dependent on the Soviet Union. This relation ship was beneficial to Cuba from an economic point of view, very beneficial. But from a political point of view, it also meant the imposition of the bureaucratic norms that existed in the Soviet Union in Cuba. Uh, so the, the bureaucratic deformations, if you want to call it like that, of the Cuban revolution come from two sources. One, the fact that there was never organs of workers' power. This was a guerrilla movement that took power. The workers supported it enthusiastically, supported the nationalizations completely enthusiastically, but they didn't have their own organs of work. There were no Soviets, no councils through which workers expressed themselves. But also the other source of uh, bureaucracy was the, the Soviet Union, the relationship with the Soviet Union. But Cuba was always a bit different from, from the Soviet Union because in Cuba there were no mass purge trials. The leadership in Cuba had carried out a revolution. The leadership in the Soviet Union had uh, strangled one, uh, had drawn a line of blood between the revolution and themselves. It's a, there is a difference. Uh, and, and the difference was to be shown in '91. When the, Cuba, the, the Soviet leadership restored capitalism, the Cuban leadership did not. So I think that there are uh, substantial uh, differences for these uh, reasons. And these differences are more important now than at the time when the Soviet Union was dominant, which, which also played a role in Cuba. So does this mean that, uh, this, that, 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 that we should have a position of political revolution or political reform? I think that this is not very useful. First, because if you say you want a, a, re a political revolution in uh, Cuba, however, however well you explain this, people in Cuba will hear revolution against the government and they will they will put you straight in away in the camp of counter-revolution. So this is, first of all, not very useful. Secondly, I think that what we should concentrate is what's the program that we should defend that we think is the best program for defending the Cuban revolution which is workers' democracy, uh, accountability, the election and recall of all officials, no official to earn a wage higher than a skilled worker, and all of these things, freedom of expression for all socialist uh, tendencies, and so on. This is the program that we want. Uh, let's put it to the test. I'm sure many people in Cuba will be in favor of a program like this. Uh, many are, in fact. Uh, and, if, and, if, and if this was to become a, a strong body of opinion, I'm sure many members of the Communist Party would support such a thing, including some who are in, in positions of, uh, of power at the local level and so on. So 
whether whether this will imply a revolution or a reform will have to be tested in in practice i think the, the most important thing is to defend a clear program a clear anti-bureaucratic program as the only way that uh, the cuban revolution can be uh, saved uh, i think i think that's my my answer to that question yeah yeah and i think that's extremely informative outline um quite a quite a nuanced approach so i i think that that covers like extensively the situation both political and economic and also the outline the outlook and approach for socialists mm-hmm. um so i guess the final note for today is uh just what are the main things that socialists can do to show solidarity with the cuban revolution today well i think i think that this discussion we are having is very interesting and and is very important to have this discussion amongst uh, socialists amongst marxists mm-hmm. but uh, we also have a duty as you say of defending the cuban revolution and, and our first duty is to inform people generally in the workers movement in the labor movement who know uh, perhaps very little about uh, cuba who whose views are mostly informed by what the bourgeois media says about cuba and so we have to start from uh, from the bottom up, right? So the first thing we need to explain is the history of the Cuban revolution. What was Cuba before the revolution and what Cuba has achieved? And, and this, is, uh, this is very important because most people don't know. I mean, like, for instance, uh, and it's very relevant for us in advanced capitalist countries. One of the first things that the Cuban revolution did was to solve the problem of housing. How did they solve the problem of housing? They abolished rents. They uh, expropriated landlords, and uh, and people who've been paying rent in a house for a certain number of years were now the owners of the of the house they lived in, and they wouldn't pay rent anymore. They 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 could not sell the the houses on in order not to create a private market for for house selling, but they they had a roof over their heads. Isn't isn't housing a massive problem in a place like Ireland today? Yeah. <laughs> massive. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I was thinking how relevant that is for Dublin. <laughs> that's right. I mean, um, Cuban Revolution abolished illiteracy and created a system where everyone can get a higher uh, university degree. Uh, now, in in uh, I'm not totally sure what the situation is in in Ireland, but certainly in Britain you end up with massive student debts same same in the united states same in most of europe you want to you want to get a university education you end up with tens of thousands of pounds or, or euros worth of uh, student debts uh, in in cuba university education is free of charge uh, it includes all your uh, materials that you need it includes uh, it includes your your housing your food uh, everything and this is in in a country that has a very difficult economic situation. If they can do this, why this cannot be done in uh, in Western Europe? The reason is capitalism. Uh, Cuba Cuba developed a massively uh, advanced health system, which is second to none. It compares favorably with the British NHS in terms of uh, number of doctors per thousand inhabitants, uh, infant mortality, and so on. In fact, the life expectancy in Cuba is uh, higher than it is in the United States. Uh, that tells you something. It tells you something about the United States' health, uh, <laughs> lack of a health system. But it tells you a lot about uh, Cuba. Or even in relation to the COVID pandemic, Cuba is one of the very few countries around the world that has developed now two vaccines. One is called Abdallah. The other one is called Soberana Dos. And they are in, they've gone through phase three trials and they're now waiting to be approved. They've already vaccinated 20% of the population with their own uh, vaccine. Why is this? Because at some point, 
they decided to invest a lot of money in a state-owned, publicly funded pharmaceutical uh, industry, which is not run on the basis of profit, is run on the basis of the needs of the people of solving, uh, producing cures for, for diseases that affect people in Cuba and other tropical countries. So uh, uh, this compares favorably with any capitalist society today. Of course, uh, the Cuban Cuban revolution has many is facing many problems and has many internal problems, has bureaucratic deformations and so on that we have discussed. But when talking to people in general about Cuba, we should start from this point of view. And then people will be able to understand why the Cuban revolution is so hated by the United States and capitalist governments around the world and why is our duty to defend uh, Cuba. So uh, this work, work of propaganda, of explanation is extremely uh, important. And only if we do that, then we will have gained, uh, earned, the, the, the possibility to participate in the debates that are taking place about the future of the Cuban revolution. If you, if you go to Cuban revolutionaries and, uh, and, uh, and you just criticize uh, Cuba, they will probably not even listen to you uh, if you don't start from the point of view of fighting against imperialism. This, this is the, the bottom line. The starting point is, uh, is that. Uh, I will say, and there's a lot that the, that the international workers movement can do to help uh, Cuba. The, the Cuba solidarity campaign in many countries is very active and should be uh, thoroughly uh, supported and should be given a very political uh, character. It's not just charity or, or solidarity or, or organizing, I don't know, a, a tour of a tropical uh, country where there's nice rum and, and tobacco. No, this is a political question. And first and, uh, and, and foremost, this is, is our duty as, as part of the workers' movement, as part of the socialist movement, to defend the Cuban uh, revolution. Because those who cannot defend the gains that our movement has made, then they will not be able to fight for anything at all. Thanks for tuning in to Socialist Revolution Podcast. If you like what you heard, please help us out by giving us a five-star rating and sharing the podcast with your friends, family, and on social media. Learn more about the international Marxist tendency and the work that we're doing in the United States by visiting socialistrevolution.org. We're living in an epoch of revolution, so take the step now to contact us and join us in the fight for socialism in our lifetime. Your